This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. We're recording here on November 18th. Let's get into some of the numbers today. So the Dow was up 31.33 points, so 0.11% today. S&P 500 was up slightly 1.57 points, so up 0.05%. The VIX was up over 3% today, uh, ended the day at 1249. And we saw Treasuries decline again, ending the day at 1.815% on the 10-year. So at the end of November, we officially became what is now the best stock market ever. So for a period of time, we've been the longest stock market ever. But through the first day of November, and which uh, rally which began on March 9, 2009, we have enjoyed a 468 or 468% gain on the S&P 500, which ekes out the second best bull market, which occurred from 1949 to 1956, so post-World War II, which was a 454% gain, and also quite a bit bigger than the 1990s, which is often renowned as a great stock market, which where in which whereby the S&P 500 saw a rally of 391%. So Grant, let's talk about what that means. I mean, we've been the longest bull market for a while, but now we're the top performing. Uh, how did we get there? And let's just kind of go back in history from from what started off as a great financial recession to where our valuations are today. Well, I think one thing to look at is what the Federal Reserve did, right? I mean, they had the quantitative easing program, which really helped the slowing economy. We also saw three rounds of easing during and after the financial crisis to lower long-term rates to encourage the flow of money into risk assets, stocks, and in corporate bonds. I think if you just look at it since Trump's inauguration, the S&P has climbed over 35%, which is significant growth. So I think also under the Trump presidency, we saw the combination of easy monetary policy as well as the lower taxes has given stock market a boost in these later years. I think if you compare it to the the bull or the best market that we we are comparing it to just after World War II, had about 454% growth. So beat that out. And then also, if we think about the second one, there was 391% growth in the early 90s. So this is definitely significant growth. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, all those are definitely major catalysts. Um, and, you know, there's also, I mean, of course, we're at, you know, top valuations, but there's also some some measures in which you know if we looked at like a Goldman Sachs report today where they're or they're talking about how there's still a lot of cyclicals underway. So you know we've talked about the potential of recessions and other things, but there's still quite a bit of the stock market may be underrepresented and may still experience some growth yet in terms of you know land standard cyclicals. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think we should, you know, kind of take a moment and, and, and look at the ramifications of what it really means to have a 10 year bull market. And, you know, we're now in unprecedented historical waters. So, yeah. And just to go further on that, I, I think that the, the U S stock market is also getting a little bit of boost because people are, are investing in America instead of 
having money in the UK. We also seen slowdown in Europe, particularly in Germany, and then merging markets, including China and India, are experiencing slowdown. So this may be why there's there's still an influx of money here. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll get into some of the global slowdown uh, now too. Uh, we we just mentioned Germany briefly, uh, but they've actually we'll talk a little bit. They've had somewhat of a revival. But with stocks up, we should also mention that um, we've seen bond prices once again increase as yields have been suppressed. Uh, this is once again due to the reoccurring issue, mostly on um, it comes to China and tariffs. Um, so you know we've we'll talk about this more in depth. But right now it seems the Chinese are walking back on agreement, or they're not you know accommodating us in terms of putting a specific dollar figure on how much they'll buy in our agricultural products, whether it be 40 to $50 billion, especially when we want to set them on a, you know, a very fixed schedule from, you know, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually and annually. We want to see, you know, actual numbers, where it thinks it's going to buy and when. Um, So that caused somewhat of a hiccup in the stock market. And that's kind of also led to, you know, suppressing yields for the last week since we've since we spoke in the last podcast. Yeah, it's interesting because the bond market right now is a lot more reactive to the trade deal than stocks. So we're seeing a lot more volatility and we're seeing the bond market look look somewhat like equities. We saw the the 10 year go just below 2% on our last podcast and then we're we're seeing it drop rapidly thereafter last week. Uh, so I think that there, the, a lot of the upward movement was from trade opti- optimism, but that, that has faded quickly as, as talks have progressed. One, one key thing that I think that happened over the weekend is we saw the protests in Hong Kong continue to turn violent, and I think that the Chinese are really watching that. But then also we saw that the Senate is looking to vote on a bill to support the protesters in Hong Kong. So I think that this will definitely impact a, a trade deal being done. Yeah, and besides Hong Kong, we've also actually seen quite a bit of instability elsewhere, right? You've seen massive protests in, in Bolivia, uh, as well as, um, you know, reoccurring issues in in Iraq um, and protests, you know, against, against their government. So in a lot of emerging markets and countries around the world, we've been racked by protests and any perceived political risk usually creates uh, a run to U.S. treasuries. So we've seen that globally, and as a result, we've seen our yields decline a little bit. Uh, let, let's get into another top of interest rates, which is really the perceived crisis around or the perceived shocks around the repo rates. So, you know, repo rates functionally is an overnight lending uh, where you're injecting, you're buying bonds, and then you're paying the lender back uh, when when hours open the next day. So that can be from the Federal Reserve to banks, and that can be from banks to banks. Um, but since September, we've been the central bank has been injecting liquidity into these funding markets. And the 17th is a date when we should really look at because the rate on overnight lending jumped to 10 percent from 2 percent. And then, um, you know, the Fed also started buying Treasury bills last month in October and to add reserves to the system. So, I mean, typically, you know, these are much higher rates than we're accustomed to. Um, so we have Jerome Powell saying that everything's under control, but there's a lot of people who are contrarian to this argument. Grant, what seems to be the, the reasons the repo markets have been spiking um, suddenly and quickly and, and how confident we should be in Jerome Powell's ability to keep them under control? 
I think the main worry is that this is a short-term fix, that the Fed is currently increasing the money supply by buying T-bills. One of the main things is that Jamie Diamond brought up the, the point that the regulations are currently clogging the plumbing and has prevented banks from moving money around. Uh, so this Powell hinted that this actually they may adjust the regulations. Uh, so these rules came into place after the 2008 financial crisis in order for banks to have enough enough liquidity in case of another market shock. Uh, I think it's interesting because you see Elizabeth Warren come out and have voiced concerns over, over changing these requirements. What Powell hinted to is, is a idea called daylight overdrafts. So what this means is that gaps between payments and settlements during the day, they're, they're okay to proceed as long as they're closed by the end of the day. So this would give banks a little more leeway to, to move money around. So it's interesting to see, to see what goes forward, but you know, jumping from 2% to 10%, that's a pretty significant jump. Yeah, we should also mention that the New York Fed announced plans to conduct repo operations in the coming months that will have longer terms than they previously have. So that might help. Um, two will have terms of two operations will have terms of uh, 42 days, according to their website. So we'll see if that helps stabilize rates. Um, let's get back into we mentioned briefly, you know, some of the crisis and yields really occurred to uh, issues that have occurred within our trade talks with China. So last week we were very bullish on the trade talks. Uh, actually, even on Friday, um, so you had uh, uh, Larry Kudlow come out and said we're getting close. But pr- prior to that in the week, we had quite a bit more uncertainty, mainly around the issues of the Chinese going how uh, how much they're going to buy of our agricultural products. You know whether they're going to put us specific dollar figure on that 40 to 50 billion and if and when they're going to start resuming um one thing they have done is they've you know um we've ended some of the poultry they've ended some of the poultry tariffs that have been in place on the u.s since 2015 but in terms of big investment into our agriculture that remains to be seen and that seems to be one of the big sticking points right now yeah i also think that you pointed out to it earlier is that the the americans want to have these monthly, quarterly, annually reports, and the Chinese are are backing away from that. I think one of the the big pieces is, yeah, we're talking about the agriculture purchases, but I think another part that's really looming in the discussions is what's going to happen around intellectual property. And in my opinion, I think this is the most important topic because we've seen U.S. intellectual property be stolen by Chinese company. Uh, so, I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of a lot of discussion still around that. So in terms of a, a, a phase one deal, I don't think if it's going to get done. President Trump has come out and said that the U.S. will, will still increase tariffs in December if, if a deal isn't reached. So I think one of the main pieces is the Chinese are expecting the rollback of tariffs, but the U.S. are, are not backing down. So it's con- continued count mass gain there. Yeah, from a tech perspective, you've also seen, you know, Big CEOs such as, you know, Jack Ma of Alibaba talk about how if, you know, if, if we don't get this in line, um, we can see what could be a 20-year tensions occurring between us. Uh, Jack Ma said on Bloomberg, you know, we've got to be careful uh, and we have to be solving problems, not creating more. I mean, we should mention that in terms of actual tra- tariffs we've have, um, they've been going on for a year and a half and they've in total more than 70% of our bilateral, you know, trade on goods. So, I mean, we've seen Alibaba stock dipped earlier and, um, and a lot of other, you know, 
companies that have their feet in both countries, um, we can expect some more volatility. Well, that's a unique example, too, because if you think about any protected Chinese company, it may be Alibaba because they have the, the online platform in the world's second biggest economy. So, so they're OK. I also thought it was interesting how now they're going to list shares on the, on the Hong Kong exchange, which might raise about $12 billion. So I think that it's interesting to see what they're doing there to protect themselves from the, from the trade war. Right. And, and we should also mention that a lot of Chinese um, companies, as we, we've talked about in the past, about in terms of what could be a security risk that's on our exchange platforms, um, you know, a lot of these are fully free market companies, but then the Chinese have a lot of quasi-state-owned subsidiaries as well. One thing we should mention, kind of getting into that same realm, is that we've actually seen foreign direct investment of China going up. Uh, it's gone up nearly 3% in the first nine months in 2019 from the year earlier. Um, so that's, you know, quite a pace. Uh, last year, we outstripped their investment, but um, it's dropped off slightly. So despite the fact that we have put in place with China, um, you know, you still see a lot of companies want to expand operations, uh, including American companies, but especially from, you know, counterparts from, from Korea and Japan and Europe. Um, they, they still have no problem in funneling in FDI into the country. Yeah, well, one thing to consider is that when, when these numbers came out, it may actually be inflated because we're seeing Chinese company moving money offshore and then bringing it back in. So this is what we saw in, in 2008, that a lot of the FDI was was coming from Hong Kong, the British Virgin Island, and, and the Cayman Islands. I also think if you, if you take a step back and look at it from a U.S. corporation standpoint, just because we see politicians in D.C. tell you that you need to leave China and look for bring, bringing it back home or, or other places for investment, I think you're going to push back because it's, it's such a large market and you're seeing the rising rising spending power of 1.4 billion people. I mean, that's pretty hard to resist. So I think that's why we're still seeing a continuing increase in foreign direct investment. Yeah, I mean, Rick Scott, who's a senator from Florida, I mean, pretty much made the point on CNBC um, the other day, where it's just like, look, the Chinese, you know, they're a partner, but let's not be, you know, misty eyed about, you know, their actual commitments to to the trade deal. I mean, they're always going to fight for what's in their best interest. It's a one party, you know, government. And, um, you know, there should be, I guess, more emphasis on shoring up what we can do domestically instead of, you know, expecting we hit a home run at the end of the day. Right. And I and I think if you if you look at this statistic from a Chinese standpoint, I mean, this is pretty encouraging, right? I mean, you're still having an investment in growth, even when the trade war is still looming. Uh, so I think if you're on the Chinese standpoint, this is this is a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. We, 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 we've talked a lot about China, but we should mention that there's also been some movement in terms of the USCMA, which um, used to be known as NAFTA. Uh, of course, we've kind of gone back to the drawing board under that, and we've been trying to re-ratify it. Nancy Pelosi says we're getting close. There are concerns that we can't get it done by the end of the year. Once we initiate it and finalize it to go into a bill, that leaves a 90-day window in which we can act on that legislatively. So, I mean, there's a lot of things up in the air. Um, one, of course, in terms of PR, there's been a lot of emphasis on the impeachment proceedings. So to, I mean, hacking out, you know, what is tough domestic agenda during this time is difficult. 
I know, you know, the um, couple trade unions are still kind of on the ear about some of the environmental regulations regarding around it and worker safety's regulations and regarding around the new U.S. CMA. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, one uh, Trump wants to show that he can get legislation done, even amidst these impeachment inquiries. But I also think that Democrats want to show that they can push forward legislation as well, even amidst these impeachment inquiries as well. Yeah, I think a deal is incredibly important here because Canada and Mexico are our two largest trade partners. So last year we had almost $300 billion in exports to Canada and then about $265 billion exports to Mexico. And to put this into perspective, you know, Chinese exports were $120 billion. So these are our two largest trading partners. So, so a deal is incredibly important. I also think that they're looking to finalize the deal by the end of this year because it will make it a lot harder as the 2020 elections start to heat up and then also we could see a lot of momentum with this deal in the next three three weeks but there also is the the government funding expiring in december as well that we should be on the lookout for yeah look i mean nancy pelosi's come across as optimistic but then you also had kevin brady who's of you know the ways and means committee uh who's you know says that he's convinced that we can get it to the president's desk by this year and we should note that you know that gives the White House, once it's submitted, got time to ratify it. The Ways and Means Committee has up to 45 days to report it to the White House. And then the chamber can, you know, have up to four, 15 days to pass it. Um, so, of course, these dates, you know, 90 days and everything takes us outside this year. But there's nothing to say that it will take that long. That's just kind of the framework we have in terms of finally ratifying the USCMA and, and pushing it forward. Yeah, the House just has a lot in its, on its plate, right? I mean, it has to pass the government funding to avoid a shutdown. Also, you have the, the impeachment process currently on the way with public hearings last week into this. And then now also we, we, we have this trade deal. So the House has its work cut out for them. Absolutely. Let's get into one asset class we kind of only talking about, you know, recurrently, but I think it's very important when we're looking at the shift of global dynamics, and that's oil. Um, we've seen a huge move from OPEC. Um, you know, they've got a lot of reasons to be concerned. Uh, oil prices have not risen. There's a lot of other countries outside the purview of OPEC that are pumping up domestic production. Let, let's talk about that a little bit, Grant. Yeah, well, oil demand has risen more slowly right now and than any time since the 2008 crisis. Uh, I think a, a result of this is Russia's daily production has increased. Um, you know, also we're we're seeing that the there's an increased supply from Brazil as well as Norway is expecting to see a surge. So even though OPEC has come out with with what they're trying to to regulate in terms of production, we're seeing that the there's an oversupply. Um, so I think that that's something to look at. Then also, if we think about just oil in general, we're seeing that it's it's starting to fade a little bit as we're starting to turn to solar energy and wind energy and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, we should mention this is a big number too, but the International Energy Agency, which is a intergovernmental forecaster, they predicted that by 2030 that OPEC and Russia, who's um, an OPEC ally, will just be will be just pumping 47% of the world's total crude. Uh, you mentioned Norway, you mentioned Brazil. I, I'd also like to mention the fact that 
I mean, fracking's done a huge number in terms of, you know, suppressing oil prices down. And despite the fact that there's, you know, um, tankers have been seized off the Gulf, I think a lot of that's been offset by the countries you mentioned. Uh, one country I'd like to mention as well is Guyana, which is, you know, you're talking about a, sol- a small, you know, rainforest country in South America, but ExxonMobil is ramping up production in terms of new crude that has been discovered. And I've seen forecasts as much that, you know, Guyana could be a country that accelerates GDP by 80 plus percent um, this coming year. Now, there's a lot of reasons um, to believe that they can't sustain this kind of growth. But I I, I would be surprised if Guyana isn't the number one country in terms of GDP growth next year uh, due to its relatively small size and due to the fact that it found a relatively large amount of oil. So, I mean, I think a lot of these countries have really changed the game and have really uh, kind of pushed OPEC back in its heels in terms of it's got, you know, a new legion of oil producing companies, you have countries to to deal with. Well, you, you mentioned it briefly, but I also think we need to look at the American sanctions on the exports of Venezuela and Iran. I mean, that's the world's largest and fourth largest oil reserves in the world. So I think that that's something that we need to be on the lookout too, as they might flood the market. But I think OPEC has a has to decide if they're going to cut production even more or keep levels the same as last year. Yep. And then uh, we also have to decide what we're going to do too, right? I mean, so, you know, our daily output in uh, September was 12% above last year's average. Um, so so we'll have to see what, what we want to do with demand as now we're a major oil player, which is uh, certainly hasn't been the case previously. And, and just one more point on that. I mean, if we look at Saudi Arabia, they had the drone attack that knocked out half of their production. So that's something to look at if, if they start to increase production next year. Also, if we think about, and we've talked about this, about the IPO of Aramco, they're planning to to list shares here in mid-December. And if there's a, a big cut in in oil output, Saudi Arabia would have to lower their, the estimates of their earnings there. So that might be something to look at how they how they look at the production numbers moving forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ramco is going to be a major deal, um, and it's it's an IPO we'll be tracking. Um, let's talk about you know we've mentioned Germany, so you got the largest economy in Europe, and when we're talking about what's the likelihood of us seeing a global recession, Germany has been a country that's kind of been discussed a lot in terms of its relatively manufacturing weakness. Um, But as of now, it looks like they posted an economic growth of just 0.1% in the third quarter. Now, that's anemic growth, but it's kind of been, um, you know, the, the, the forecast before that was actually a negative number. So there's a lot of factors that indicate that German consumption right now is at least staving off what could be uh, them dipping into a recession. Yeah, I think the leadership of Germany is pretty happy as there was a lot of calls for a stimulus package when people thought they were heading for a recession, but they were able to to study the ship and and move forward. And, and so now we're seeing some good numbers out of there in terms of car production as well as, as their construction numbers. Uh, and so I think that that's, that's something to, to be happy about if you're if you're the German government. Yeah, we've seen it in the United States too, right? I mean, the resiliency of the consumers, whether we're talking about private or public, can really um, uplift an economy uh, in in times when it's when it's looking quite bleak. Um, as as Bloomberg, you know, twenty three of the forecast tracked by Bloomberg indicated that German growth would be actually a negative number, negative zero point one percent. 
So that's that's a good sign, at least now, in terms of when we're talking about Europe in general, but of the larger global economy of the manufacturing decline and the likelihood of, a, of an upcoming global recession. And with that, Grant, I'd like, uh, as we kind of close this podcast, wondering what you're looking for in the next week and what we should be, you know, talking about. Well, I'm continuing to watch the impeachment hearings uh, to see to see how these shape out. Also, as well, if we think about more Democrats entering the race here, there was talks about Mike Bloomberg entering. Uh, so we'll see we'll see what happens there. Also, as we mentioned, the we work also to see what happens there as they're predicting maybe five thousand to six thousand job lays off layoffs. Uh, we also saw that, you know, SoftBank has invested a large, pretty much bailed them out to see what their five-year plan is moving forward, because that was the highest valuation of a startup, and then they had their botched IPO. So I'll be following that closely. What about you, Drew? Yeah, I'll be looking at how negotiations go for the US CMA. I'll also be looking at um, us getting a deal by the 21st, which is in terms of passing a new budget, um, seeing whether we avoid a, a government shutdown this year. Um, so those are two big issues I'll be looking at. Um, and then, of course, we're kind of getting into the end of the month, so we're going to be looking at, you know, non-farm payrolls of November and a lot of the end of the uh, month November numbers as well. All right, so everyone, thanks uh, for listening into this fourth episode of WealthFest, the Weekly Bull and Bear. We will not be doing a podcast next week as it's Thanksgiving, uh, but I'd like to ask everyone to subscribe and like and share, um, and we'll, we'll talk to you uh, after the week of the holidays. Thanks. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.